Angry feelings are disagreeable. I'm putting you on warning. Just who the hell do you think you people are? They will be met with fire and fury. They make you act and look as well as feel unhappy. Our very way of life. Look at the fear. Are under threats from extremists. I am your voice. Well, welcome to Anger Management with Nick Clegg. And in this podcast, the theme is that rage is the opposite of reason. And that a world in which there's too much rage and too little reason is just a bad world. It's one which is less prosperous, less safe, less less civilised. And so I will speak to a number of guests who've got views about why the world is as angry as it is and what we can do about it. And my guest this week, I've been really looking forward to this conversation, is someone whom I know very well professionally, politically, George Osborne. He and I were in the trenches together in government for half a decade, but um, contrary to perhaps perception, we didn't spend that much time together out of out of office hours. So I know a little bit less about what makes him tick personally, and I'm very keen to hear how he got to see the world in the way that he does and what he thinks about the politics of populism and anger now. George, welcome. It's great to be on your show, Nick. Are you an angry person? No, I don't think so. I mean, obviously, other than, chopping, other, other than chopping people up and sticking them in the freezer. No, other than that, I mean, are you... I'm not a. Um, I, I very rarely lose my temper. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, I other, others will vouch for it. Um, but whether it's uh, in when I was a politician in the Treasury or indeed in the newspaper, the Evening Standard, I now edit. Um, I don't shout at people. I mean, I can get frustrated. And I think people can probably detect when I think things could be better done. But I I can't remember the last time I ever shouted at someone in a in a professional environment or indeed at home. And a slightly different question about anger then does does anger or frustration about the way things are, has that driven you politically? I mean it, you're I mean I I can vouch for this. You're a you're I mean you're a conundrum like everybody is. You're a, one of the most political politicians I've ever come across. And yet you also, by contrast, have a completely non-political hinterland. You're interested in history, science. You've got, I think, something which is quite unusual in politics. You've got quite an ability to see the way the world looks from the point of view of people you don't agree with. But but are there, are there kind of things that... that what's, the, what's the thing that drives your politics? Well, I guess it is uh, rationality, that you can make a series of decisions and be part of those decisions, which are fantastically interesting uh, on a personal level, uh, that uh, can improve the world and, and the country uh, in measurable ways. And it's not particularly emotional. Uh, maybe that's you know been a problem for me, actually, not displaying that. It's sometimes quite detached. But it's fantastically interested in being involved in putting together a budget or a mm. legislative program for a government and being able to execute it. You know, I was always, I guess, somewhat dismissive of people we used to work with who would have kind of big airy plans and then couldn't deliver it. So it is, you know, it's it's quite dry in that sense. Um, and it's essentially based on a set of beliefs which are broadly free market, socially liberal, pro-business and pro-international, which curiously in British politics don't, you know, they're not exclusively owned by one party. And, uh, they may be at any one time, but they kind of cross the different parties. And sometimes mm. the Conservative Party, for example, can be quite, you know, obviously anti-internationalist, as you're noticing at the moment. And sometimes the Labour Party can be pro-business. And then other times, like now, it can be very anti-business. So, you know, I have a set of beliefs, I guess. And I found a home 
for mm. those beliefs in the Conservative Party in the 1990s. And what was the genesis? So when, so could you, for instance, in I don't know, could you have been in a different setting at a different time? Could you have been a, a sort of Blairite MP for you know the, the, the sort of the Blairite view of? The, I mean, I think you you were always a great admirer of his political skills, quite quite sort of understandably. I remember you. Maybe you, you would say that, but w- could you imagine circumstances in which that kind of internationalist, socially liberal viewpoint could have been something that, in a, in a different time, in a different place, you would have subscribed to? I mean, it's not. Well, I think the the, the views have been very consistent. I would think uh, through the my time as a student, um, then working in politics, and now editing the paper, um, and. I guess I chose early on in the early 90s. Uh, I wasn't a student politician. I edited mm. the uh, university magazine instead. But when I came to vote in the 92 general election, and I guess it was a choice between Neil Kinnock and John Major mm. back then, way back then, uh, you know, I just thought more comfortable with John Major. I found the Labour Party a bit off-putting in, the, in its sort of very tribal approach. It's sort of what I thought was rather anachronistic Mm -hmm. um, rooting in the labor movement and so on. And so I was it's not that I'd been a committed young conservative or a student conservative or I debated things at the Oxford Union. I hadn't done any of those things. Uh, But when I actually came to put my cross Mm -hmm. in the ballot box and it was a close election back then. Uh, I found myself um, in the Oxford East constituency voting for the Tory candidate. Mm. And was there a. We're roughly the same age, but for, for me, I always think I probably slightly reinvented my own mind. But I always think the fall of the Berlin Wall was just one of those things that completely defined the way I looked at the world. And I remember that mm. sort of breathless sense of optimism, and everything was kind of possible, and that kind of spectre of nuclear conflict and Soviet it just suddenly lifted. And particularly as a European, even then, uh, it was such an uplifting experience. This sort of feeling that the continent was coming together was that a big thing for you? Was that, or was there another moment of epiphany or a moment that kind of really consolidated the way you viewed the world politically? I guess you know it was the, around that time that I was becoming very politically conscious. Um, I was uh, eighteen when the Berlin Wall fell, um, and I'd grown up. I, and you know, my parents are still uh, thankfully. With with us and uh, very much alive and active. I grew up in a very metropolitan environment in central London, in Notting Hill. And my father's an interior designer. My mum worked for Amnesty International for a while. And it, they didn't know any MPs. I mean, I never met an MP except when so they... you didn't come from a political family? No. Um, and I, the only MPs I ever met were ones who would go to my school... Uh, and you know, turn up for a, to give a talk or something. So, so that wasn't my parents' social world. It was much more, a, you know, I guess a metropolitan middle class world of yeah. publishers and journalists and um, you know, art dealers and things like that. Are they more Very chuffed? Pr- are they more chuffed? You're the editor of the <laughs> Evening Standard in that case. <laughs> no, to be the fair, of the Exchequer. They um, they were always a very good guide actually throughout my life to. Uh, the way the wind was blowing politically, as it happens. My mother voted Labour, and then in 19... And I remember in 1979, that was my sort of first political memory, I guess, going with her to vote in the general election, and she voted for Margaret Thatcher because Margaret Thatcher was a woman. She was sort of holding her nose and voting Conservative for the first time, but she wanted a female Prime Minister. My dad, you you know, you, you should definitely uh, speak to him because he's a he's a liberal. He's, um, he's a kind of old-fashioned liberal. Yeah, yeah. Sort of grim and uh, liberal. Yeah, yeah. and... Um, and they, so, you know, there certainly wasn't, conservatism wasn't part of the f- family um, makeup. But 
A, of course, um, you know, as the sort of Labour Party went a bit loony, they stuck with the Tories. And B, of course, once I became a Conservative, yeah, you know, I, dest- I destroyed the machine because there was a good, accurate guide to how what was going to happen in the general election because my parents loyally supported me yeah. um, even before I was an MP. However, I'm absolutely sure that certainly speaking, my mother would have voted for Tony Blair and she was exactly the kind of person. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, actually at the last general election, she didn't vote Conservative. Yeah. Um, in the Kensington constituency, so, yeah, right. uh, she was one As of the uh, twenty. Clearly, she was. She voted she Liberal Democrat. You'd be very proud to know. Uh, and well, she would do so on. She did so on the basis of you know she doesn't like the way yeah. that the Conservative Party has felt you know anti-international, anti-European, anti-immigrant, and mm-hmm. you know she changed the vote as a result. And so, would you call yourself a? I mean, for want of a better, would you call yourself a Liberal Conservative? Yes. Yeah. And what? And what? I mean, I think you've already probably described it. What? How would you describe liberalism as you... Well, I guess it's sort of old-fashioned John Stuart Mill liberalism around free speech and, you know, freedom of the individual. Avoid harm to others. Um, Plus a, um, a, you know, and I guess in a sort of modern form, uh, you know, a very um, aggressive support of um, gay rights, you know, causes of equality, diversity... More recently, actually, and I mean, it was always there for me, but I guess I didn't, you know, articulate it enough. A pro-immigrant. I mean, my grandmother comes; uh, she's dead, but she came from Hungary, mm. and uh, so, you know, I've always felt very comfortable in a very diverse society, and I'd never felt, you know, my values were under threat, or, you know, my communities being taken away from me, or anything like that. Um, and uh, the more I look back on my life, you know, the more I'm proud of some of the decisions I made, which I never, probably at the time, didn't think were going to great stands. But you know, I was in a very in a, in a minority as a new Conservative MP in voting to abolish Section 28. The party amazingly was whipped to um, um, continue it, and uh, again defying again the the Ian Duncan Smith leadership at the time with David Cameron and Boris Johnson, interesting trio of us, mm. uh, on the rights of gay people to adopt children. And, of course, together you and I in a government that um, legalised gay marriage. And so that that aspect mm. of it is... But you wouldn't call yourself a social liberal, would you? No, I would call... Without getting into... Because, I, I mean... I would call myself a social liberal, actually. I'm not an, I'm not an... You know, I'm an economic conservative, yeah, as you yeah, yeah. well know, because yeah, yeah. we had lots of arguments about it. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm a sort of... Fi- sort of small c fiscally responsible person who you know thinks the book should add up um is not you know would like to make britain a more competitive place to do business i'm excited about technology i'm excited about the chain i don't think the robot's going to take all the jobs and you know so i i'm i'm you know that's my mindset and of course uh, you know that is was i think a handicap for me actually in conservative politics in not really always appreciating as much as i should have done and perhaps trying to understand a bit more than I did uh, the that f- form of conservatism, which is very socially conservative. The way you describe your views, they're very, they're liberal conservative views. They're socially liberal, mm. but they're very, they're very much formed by the, as you say, both, both your family and where you lived he- here in London. It's, I mean, it's mm. such a world apart from Rees Mogg. I mean, it's, it's a sort of different yeah. planet, it seems to me. And that's enough, I'm, when, when I was about seventeen, uh, I. Um, was taking part in a debating competition um, 
uh, you know, I was not a big rebel as a teenager. Uh, and I was representing, you know, very, uh, very lucky. must lucky. have been so cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you were as well. And, you know, I... Um, uh, I, I, I went to a very good school, private school, St Paul's, and, I, and uh, the, the sort of final of the debating competition was in the Oxford Debating Union. So schools all over. This is what year then? This, like, this would be like 1988, I guess, uh, or maybe 1989. And I went to um, see the final uh, in Oxford. I wasn't in the final, but uh, we had been a runner-up. And this extraordinary character called Jacob Rees-Mogg. <laughs> who was president of the Oxford Union at the time, appeared. He's a very formidable debater. He certainly was then as well. And I just remember thinking, this is what's this alien species that yeah. I've come yeah. across? And then yeah. for a while I thought, well, maybe, maybe they're all like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I've, I've since, since discovered that he is somewhat unique, uh, thankfully. Yeah. Well, is he? I mean, I, I, this is a wider thing, but I think one of the interesting things about politics now is that cartoon characters... I mean, I, I mean, you don't have to comment, but I think the sort of Farage's, Johnson's... Well, they're cartoon characters. They're sort of almost sort of confections uh, are now being conferred or sort of seriousness has been conferred upon them that I think only happens when politics is a bit kind of out of sorts. Well, they've certainly got charisma and, you know, that kind of the word that's bandied around a lot now, authenticity. You know, it's not OK to just be a kind of rational, serious person yeah, who, yeah. you know, leads fairly sort of straightforward life and then yeah. that's not good enough anymore you've got to be colourful and you've yeah. got to be eccentric and you've got to wear strange clothes but is that authentic and you've got to have is wearing strange, strange clothes and... authentic well I look, so that's I, the weird I, thing I think I sometimes think I think sometimes the ticket to authenticity is doing lots of very inauthentic things yeah I mean, wearing thick wool woolen three-piece suits <laughs> or having a dishevelled mop of hair in your 50s or you know confecting ways to hold a pint like Farage these are these are very artificial things but they but well, they allow I think people you, um, to think it's authentic. There have always been flamboyant politicians. Mm. Uh, I mean, and I hate to suggest any direct comparison, but you know, Winston Churchill with his kind of cigar yeah. and his yeah. you know V sign, and uh, Benjamin Disraeli in his kind of elaborate yeah, yeah. purple outfits, and you know, they they've always been a sort of space for those sort of British eccentrics. Um, it, it's not really the kind of hairstyle or the clothing that I mind. It's yeah. the um, views that come with these. Just on that, before we move on to the next thing. Um, so, I, I mean, I, one of the things I've, of course, encountered, like anybody has who's spent any time in public life, is there's quite a big distance between the way you think of yourself as a human being and the way that you learn that people at least perceive you. And I think that gap is especially quite big, or at least was with you, because... Uh, um, uh, without embarrassing you, you're even when I found you f absolutely infuriating or completely disagree with you. You always you are engaging, uh, gossipy, funny, um, and none of that, at least when we were in government, I think came across. Now, do you think that was the function of the role of being a Chancellor of the Exchequer, or do you think did you sort of is, is the way that you would communicate publicly just did you just not did you just not sort of unbutton in a way that you would do quite clearly when you were, you know, away from the microphones and the cameras? Well, I think partly the role. Yeah. You know, you're the nation's and accountant and finance yeah. minister, and of course we had to do some very difficult things. Indeed. And so, you, you know, I think it doesn't kind of lead, lend itself to levity. Um, second, uh, I was very young. Uh, you know, I was 33 when I became the shadow chancellor. I was 38 when I was Chancellor Exchequer. And I always thought the first thing I had to do was prove to people mm. that this kid could do the job. Mm. You know, and so I was 
I guess so. You put on a high-vis jacket. I was well. Well, that could be. <laughs> no, that that was later. later. <laughs> See, that came later. I think I was initially just all I had to prove to yeah. people was that I was serious. I can do the sums, mm. and uh, you know, I was not. Uh, you know, that I was capable of doing the job on their behalf, and that meant I think that I was much less willing to display any other side of my life or my character. Mm. Um, and, and to a degree, I was also shielding my family from the public glaze, which I think, to, to be fair, is much easier as, as the chancellor than as the prime minister or indeed any leader of a political party, as you know, you would know better than me. So, you know, that I, I, I kind of, I guess, sort of stayed in my, my room at the Treasury. And it was only later as chancellor when I realised that this was a, you know, a growing problem. Uh, did I kind of make a really conscious effort with some good advice that I got to go out there mm. and the kind of high-vis jacket became the kind of caricature of it. But it was essentially put yourself out there, tell us a bit more about yourself. Um, uh, that, but that came, you know, pretty late in the day mm. Mm. Uh, and yeah. probably too late. Just a little interim question. Uh, I mean, you can sort of tell something, tell something about people about about the sort of choice of company they want to keep. So, if you had to choose who you'd be stuck in an elevator with, who who would it be and why? I think we call it a lift, don't we, in Britain? Oh, do we? A lift, then. <laughs> uh, you can spot a citizen of nowhere when. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, well. Uh, um, I'm tempted to say Jennifer Lawrence, but I'm not sure people would see that in the right way. So I would say, no, they uh, say. <laughs> uh, I would say um, uh, Bob Dylan, oh. I, because I think he's for a good reason, which is I think the only way you could possibly meet him, given he didn't bother to, to pick up the Nobel Prize, yeah. right. you'd have to be stuck in a lift with him to get any time with him. And I, you know, I grew up in a family where the Dylan music was always on in the background, and it's still, you know, I guess the most the, the music I most often listen to. Really? Still now? Well, if I had to choose one artist, yeah. I wonder what the yes, I wonder what the conversation would be like. But uh, no, I think quite limited. I <laughs> quite think. limited. But you can listen to the music at least. But uh, if I get him to sing a few, you know, lines from Hey Mr. Tambourine. If you're listening to a Nick Clegg podcast, we're guessing you're not very keen on Brexit, in which case you should be listening to Romaniacs, the Brexit podcast for Remainers and the Euro Curious from the producers of Anger Management. Every week we go deep into the entrails of Brexit with humour, real analysis and special guests ranging from James O'Brien to Gina Miller to Nick Clegg. That's Romaniacs with me, Dorian Linsky, on the Apple Podcast Store and all fine podcast outlets. You're listening to Anger Management with Nick Clegg, and I'm in conversation with George Osborne. So, George, we've talked a bit about you, your views, uh, your background, uh, why you'd want to be stuck in a lift rather than an elevator with uh, uh, Bob Dylan. I'd want to sort of talk a bit now about you know the politics of Brexit, Trump, populism, the eruption of nationalism, chauvinism, protectionism, you know, all the isms flow, flow freely. I don't need to sort of describe them to you. But I guess the first question, which I get asked a lot, by the way, so it's in a sense a question that I think we both faced, but it would be, be remiss not to, is there is a narrative, particularly from the sort of left of politics, which says, look, it wasn't the 2008 crash which caused a lot of the social and economic anxieties that have propelled a lot of people to kind of, you know, search, search for nuances in politics. It was the reaction to it. And... Um, 
you know, that what you and I and others did you know, in, in uh, kind of reining in public spending and so on. This this is what has created the the inequality and the social injustice and so on and so forth. I mean, I have my own answer to it, but it's not. It's um, I'd be quite interested to know. Have you thought about that a lot? And do you do you do you feel there is a link between the not not just between the crisis in two thousand and eight, but the reaction to the crisis in two thousand and and what's happening in politics now? Um, no, is the short answer. And the reason I think that is because in many countries that pursued an opposite reaction to the one we pursued, uh, like the Obama administration in the United States, uh, you know, essentially an anti-austerity approach, you have not noticed that the population is more united or less, you know, angry. Uh, and I think I don't. I, I studied history at university as an undergraduate. I think a historian would have little trouble in 50 years' time looking back at this period and identifying why uh, it is as it is. We had an enormous economic crash in the West, as big as the Great Depression in our country. And every time in human history you have had economic hardship or crisis, it has led to strong popular populist reactions uh, in our politics. And politics is not some sort of separate out there activity while the rest of us all get on with our lives. It is the way we as a society negotiate our differences and try to live together. And and so it, the first thing a historian would say, well, you had a big, big economic crash and understandably it's built over into... Do you think Trump would have been elected or Brexit would have happened if 2008 had not happened? I think it's unlikely. Yeah, me too. Uh, second, I think a historian would also identify the technological revolution that has happened over the last 10 years, entirely coincidentally with the financial crisis, which has allowed you know, new movements to be launched off the back of a, a mobile phone. You know, If you want to get 10,000 people in Trafalgar Square protesting, well, 15 years ago, you needed to hand out leaflets, have an organisation like a trade union that could uh, manage all that, phone people up and get them all to please come to Trafalgar Square midday on a Saturday. It, you know, We could do it now. Uh, if you know, with the right um, message through the phones we've got mm. in our pockets. So there's been a huge shift in, the, in and disruption in the industry of politics. And just like that has been in newspapers and music and so on. And that has allowed new groups to emerge to essentially exploit mm. this understandable upset at uh, you know things like stagnant incomes, the sense of injustice that the banks caused the crisis, the you know all of those things mm. have enabled new actors to come together, and that double that sort of disruption, economic disruption and technological disruption collided. But those historians that you allude to would also, I mean, I think they'd acknowledge, you know, a point that I've I've made, which is that actually the despite the rhetoric, the Fiscal contraction that you and I presided over in the five years, 2010 to 2015, I'll set aside for a minute some of the decisions you took immediately after, which I didn't agree with, but was actually less the pace of, uh, of kind of deficit reduction than planned by Alistair Darling and, and George Brown. But uh, Sorry, Gordon Brown. <laughs> um, there's a confusion. Different characters. Yeah, different characters. But um, can I just press you a little yeah, bit further on that? Because it's not just about the kind of macroeconomic thing. It's also about where does the burden fall and so on. And as yes. you know, the... The, the the you know part of the assertion or allegation is okay fine you had to kind of trim the growth in public spending but the way it was done was 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 you know was was punitive and unfair and that and that, it, that bred a, a brewing sense of injustice well, which toppled into the kind of politics of anger the only thing I would say 
you know, and, and in my defence, I mean, and yeah, these are the kind of minutiae about these things. I mean, literally yeah. the line by line minutiae that I remember yeah. you and I used to argue about the most, yes. which was where not not do you reduce public spending, but how and where. Uh, yes, I mean, the, what I would sort of argue is first of all, uh, and I know you know it's not fashionable, but the numbers show from lots of we're talking. This is a you know a podcast in part mm. about rationality mm. versus irrationality. You know, every independent study of the period we're talking about shows inequality fell, that the balance of the fiscal consolidation was felt hardest by the top 10%, as it rightly should have been. Uh, and by the way, you know, when I, the you know, the number one thing people call me on usually is about sort of high stamp duty, you know, for richer people. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, we did, or the evidence is inequality fell and um, incomes rose more than in other countries. And, you know, we did better in that period. And then finally, you know, speaking as someone who was involved in the 2015 election, of course, the Conservatives, uh, we we won elect, you know, we did better at that the following general election. So I don't really buy the argument that 18 months later, mm. in a Brexit referendum, or indeed at the subsequent general election in 2017, the kind of mood of the country had so dramatically changed about austerity and, mm. you know, the unfairness of things. Uh, it, it seems to me other things came in and uh, intruded, not least, of course, uh, immigration. Yeah. Why then, though, did, did the Brexit eruption, if I could put it like that, not have its echo in, I don't know, Podemos winning in Spain or Alternative for Deutschland sweeping the board in Germany or Gerhard Wilders winning in Holland or Marine Le Pen winning in France. Because do you, you remember, if you go, I mean, it seems like an ages ago now, it's not that long ago that people were kind of breathlessly talking about Brexit, Trump being just a series of dominoes. And I often ask, and I don't have a perfect answer to this, is why why have the sort of moorings of, of what I call mainstream politics appear to be so much more unanchored in the Anglo-American uh, democracies rather than in the big mainland European? Well, I mean, I have, a, I have a pet theory. It's partly to do with the fact that we avoided high... We avoided unemployment, but we did see a remorseless squeeze on people's take-home pay for those who were in work, whereas in parts of Europe, I think unemployment went up, but for those who were lucky enough to have jobs actually their in-work benefits were... Pre- so, in other words, the sort of conservatism for them, there was an incentive for them to hold on to the status quo. That's, I mean... I think... Um, I'm not sure I agree with you, actually. I think... Uh, on that you, point? Well, no, on your original premise. I, if you look, there's been a lot of disruption in European politics. What it hasn't always been is, you know, a movement to the fringes. Mm-hmm. If you look at France, you know, President Macron was an enormously disruptive force in French yeah. politics. He's the first person who's won from outside the major political parties there. He used social media very effectively, and he capitalised on a sense of uh, you know discontent and um, despair in France. But he, of course, did that from the centre. You look at Italian politics, I mean, never you know particularly functional, now seems even more dysfunctional. Uh, you look in Germany, support for the two major post-war parties, the Christian Democrats, Social Democrats now at an all-time low and lots of other forces, including the AFD, coming in there. You look at Eastern Europe uh, mm. with a very alarming rise in nationalist governments. And so, Austria, Austria, of course. Austria's seen. got yeah. that. Yeah. Even younger than we were, uh, yeah. Chancellor. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I, so I don't see any... Yeah. I, I mean, there are some exceptions around the world, like, you know, Australian politics still seems pretty rational and whatever, but... Amongst most Western democracies, not all, it feels like 
they've all been hit by this post two thousand eight and yeah. post two thousand eight. Uh, you and social media. And I don't underestimate the technology because I just think it's changing the business of politics in terms of allowing new entrants to come in at a much lower price than before. Can we just dwell on that for a sec, um, since you raised it? I mean, we're in the moment in, a, in the middle of a Ferrari about um, Facebook, data going via some academic in Cambridge to Cambridge Analytica and being misused and so on and so forth. Um, and there's a kind of there's a kind of almost rampant narrative that says that you know, Mark Zuckerberg is the greatest threat to... Sort of, the integrity of our democracy since the time began. Now, I have to say to you, I, I, as an outsider, you're, you're in the kind of newspaper industry, I have to say I'm a little bit cynical um, when I see news, newspapers who have a vested interest in, in besmirching the social media because they're much better at attracting their advertising revenue and in the wake of their remorseless and criminal exploitation of people's private data and hacking in, in recent years and so on. I find it all a bit rich and so on. But... Uh, how, how much do you think, both in the traditional mainstream media, you're an editor now of the Evening Standard, and combined with this kind of increasingly almost vituperative competition with Facebook and so on, is that the th- is is that is that leading to a kind of breathlessness and a kind of vitriol in the way in which public debate is happening that is qualitatively new or or, or not? I mean, we we're living in a everyone knows about these, you know, particularly the breathless headlines about traitors and treason and um, enemies of the people and uh, you know the wave of fury you, about you, blue passports and all this in the Daily Mail. You, you've but been called you? all these things. Yeah, I have. I have <laughs> repeatedly for years. No, no. Uh, you know my question. Is, yeah, yeah. is there something going on in the media for one reason or another which is kind of adding fuel to the fire? Uh, well, I think two things are happening. First, there's a very interesting debate about how we regulate this new technology. Yeah. Facebook, Google and you know the companies mm-hmm. like them. Um and that's a good debate to have. Uh, you know, they were they're they're yeah. in many ways sort of uh, brilliant companies that grown out of nowhere and massively improved our life and the way we connect with each other and so on. But they are feel they feel to me like adolescents who are sort of physically big, huge, in a grown up world, and suddenly they're coming into contact with adults like. Yeah. The British government or the US government, or the, maybe not. Their so, voices are hardly broken. And yeah, I mean, and I think they like all kind of new industry. It takes a lot. It takes a while for governments and parliaments, which are, tend to be more slow moving, to catch up with it. But of course, Facebook should be subject to similar regulations around ed, being an editor that I face as a newspaper editor about what you can publish, what you can't publish. There's a reason why those laws existed. Of course, you know companies like Uber should provide for the sickness cover for their workforce and the pensions for their workforce and the maternity rights of their workforce. No one really believes that, you know, these... these, these, but, nor these, you, these but, nor, but nor do you believe that Zuckerberg could be the, an editor no. of everything that, that two billion people post up on their Facebook page? Well, no, that's, no, 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 no it, it can be responsible for, for, the content, the, no, for the news feeds it provides ah, and things right. like that. Um, Obviously, it's doing an editorial job. What does an editor do? An editor makes a selection of the kind of news you should see and tries to provide an interesting mix um, and, and you know, tries, tries to ensure that it's accurate and uh, not defamatory and, and so on. Um, so I think regulation is coming to all of these industries in a very big way. I think it's a big theme of the next 10 years. Interestingly, in the United States, it's the left, the, the Democrats, yeah. who've picked up on monopolies in this new tech businesses as a potential frustrator of productivity growth and real incomes rising. And now you get quite a lot of Democrats saying we should break these companies up. Mm. You know, I, European Competition Commissioner, I'm sure that she is looking at it. So 
I think that's all, you yep. know, very interesting area of uh, public debate. Ha- is our kind of politics more polarised? Well, I-, I guess I'm a little bit cautious of uh, jumping to that conclusion because we've been through incredibly polarising periods in our past. Mm. In, in the 1960s and 70s, there were mass demonstrations and, indu- you know, industrial strikes and, and real bitterness in the politics. And the 1980s as well, you know, and I, I was a, grew up in the mm. era of the miners' strike and... All of that. So the idea that somehow it's worse today, I don't buy. Mm. Uh, I think what is true, though, is that the the loss of the common experience of watching a nightly news bulletin has removed the, the social glue that at some point we might read the sun or the mirror, you know, the mail or the guardian. And I don't think, you know, they were always... But everyone sits and watches But there was they? a kind of common yeah, experience yeah. of particularly when nations faced very big events of switching into the national just, news. Just on that. That, and that's on the decline. Look at yeah. the average age you know, of the, the BBC One audience. Yeah, yeah. It's now in its 60s. Yeah. And you know, my children, who are teenagers, yeah. I can't remember the last time. They you know, they, telly. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that, I think, has created a bit of a loss of social glue, if you like. Mm. Just on the broadcast for a minute, um, the, the, particularly around the Brexit debate, the, 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 there's been a lot of kind of clearly angst in the way that only the BBC can do sort of self-inflicted angst in the in the BBC as the nation's sort of major broadcaster about balance and the and I remember actually you and I and others when we were talking about it around the cabinet table at the time of the Scottish referendum in the name of balance you often get frankly views which just everybody knows are complete patent nonsense given a certain sort of legitimacy that so do you think balance sometimes in broadcast has actually legitimized falsehood well, I am quite critical. I mean, of the way the BBC covered the European referendum. But let me say from the start, you know, I was the Chancellor of Exchequer at the time, so I take yeah. a primary responsibility. Don't worry, uh, I wasn't, and I agree with you. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it's not like I, I don't, I'm not looking for someone else to blame. Yeah. Um, but um, if I look at uh, the way the BBC covered it, I think you're right at that in the, aid, in the sort of name of balance in a referendum, which, of course, you do want to have, it was... They weren't making any judgment calls on the validity of some of the claims made. And also they were they were too kind of obsessed with the psychodrama of what was happening to the conservative family. A be- the best example of which is that on the day before Britain voted to leave the EU, the main story that led the BBC news bulletins was that a guy called Steve Hilton disagreed with his old friend David Cameron. Mm. That was literally the lead story. There was no... That, that's the and yeah. that, that's an interesting news. But now we're story. arguing about the depiction of Jeremy Corbyn's hat. So things haven't got oh, better, have they? Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 so, and I, so I do. I do think yeah. they fell a bit for the trap of the soap opera drama, you know, mm. which clearly was there was a soap opera going on. But you know, that was not the central uh, thing that I think the national broadcaster should have been doing. But look, that I, there's yeah. many things I admire about the BBC. So. Uh, I don't want that to be taken sure. out of context. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm, you know, but just on the other side of the fence before we move on from the media. So, ha, I mean, how much... Boy, look, I, I'm like any person who was in politics once. You Politicians, we all over-obsess about the press. Um, um, but is it... I mean, is it worrisome that there's actually a very small number of people who can exert tremendous influence on politicians at moments of, of kind of vital national interest? And I don't say... I mean, I dislike the guy intensely. I think it's fully reciprocated. But just setting aside my kind of attitudes towards Paul Dacre, this highly influential editor of the Daily Mail, it, it, and it's not just a conservative thing. You know, Gordon Brown was obsessed with him. But it seems 
it seems, is it not an issue that one individual appears to have a tremendous and disproportionate influence on the thinking of what has almost been a hand-picked Prime Minister in Theresa May, but by him? Is that, I mean, is that not just an issue of power and influence that is that is just not accountable enough or transparent enough? Or is that is that overstating things? Well, I have to be careful because he's Indeed. my next-door neighbour in the building oh, I work in. <laughs> I'll be going You're back lucky. there. <laughs> then, then, I, you I, don't I, want to share a lift with him. Uh, look, and actually, <laughs> when it comes to Paul Dacre, I, they're, they're, he's a very, very effective editor. So as an so ed- in, the, in terms of the actual sort of mastery of the editing, you know, he's he's got a you know very impressive track record. I don't really agree with most of the things he says, but that's a different you know that's different. I think you can respect sure. someone even if you don't agree with them. I think look, there's always been a kind of a concern about media barons and editors, and you go back to the 20s and 30s, and people were talking about you know. Uh, the media, you know, having power without responsibility, and that being the prerogative of the harlot. Oh, yeah. So, I, I think newspapers are influential, uh, and one of the reasons, you know, when I left politics, um, I thought editing a paper would be interesting. Although some people were surprised and felt like I was going into a dying industry, is because I think you can, can make newspapers relevant both to their readers, whether online as well as in print. And, of course, in a country with a public broadcaster who's often a bit nervous of taking the initiative uh, on things, then you can um, mm-hmm. shape that, 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 that output too. And above all, I think the age is moving back towards trusted news sources because of what we've just been talking about. You know, your Facebooks now, would lo- you know, they want the trusted brands like the New York Times or Reuters or the BBC or, I hope, you know, the Evening Standard as a kind of as – a, as a, they're going back to um, – these news brands and the newspapers have these news brands the best you know react politicians do not have to follow a newspaper agenda you know when david cameron and i took control of the conservative leadership in 2005 you know we did so in the teeth of the opposition of the daily mail Mm -hmm. you know they were totally against us winning that contest they ran all sorts of stories about our private lives on the front page of the newspaper at the time to try and knock us off course and we you know we just ignored them and went straight to the conservative membership and the same is, you know, we rarely had the support through the time we were in charge of the party, or, or certainly the solid support of the what you would mm. call the conservative press. So I think it proves, you know, it can be done. Uh, it's not always easy. And of course, any sensible politician will make a big effort to try and influence the media um, in their direction. But you can ignore them. But I vividly remember, anyway, let's not, let's not do it. I mean, I vividly remember individual decisions when we were sitting around discussing budgets saying, mm. well, we can't possibly do that because some, edit, some editor has got some personal bee in their body, uh, bonnet against. Anyway, look, it, 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 let, let's you move on. Are more, more popular than Churchill? <laughs> oh, so fleetingly, George. No, no, I, I, meant, I, meant more, I meant more about kind of the, the, the web of um, relationships which, which do exist, yeah. of course. But anyway, look... Just, um, I just, I, I guess, I'm not a conspiracy theorist in general. You know, I, I think. No, no, I'd, I think, I'd love, I'd love to believe you when you say, which is, where, I mean, you've given a magnificently, magisterially diplomatic answer, which will keep your relationship with, uh, with your, with, with uh, my with, neighbour. With, with no, that's fine, and, and I, and I respect that. But I, I'd love to believe your depiction of politicians able to act entirely independently, autonomously, of very uh, powerful vested interests. No, I would say then, I and, and I think at the moment. I, I, I see some very aggressive vested interests who are not accountable to the public, very rich, so, so happens to be a collection of very rich older men, many of whom don't even live here or pay taxes here, who seem to be exerting disproportionate influence on probably the most important decisions since the Second World War about the future of our country. But I think that's partly because you know, they've been allowed to. 
Whereas, yeah. No, no, no. no. But, so that's you know that's more yeah. to the to kind of question of leadership amongst the politicians. Sure. And and in politics, you're only one player. If you're an MP or indeed the PM or the Deputy Prime Minister, you're one player yeah. in a complex system of all sorts of forces, yeah. businesses, unions, pressure groups, media institutions, many of whom are unaccountable in, in the kind of democratic sense. But that's the reality. I think rather yeah. than, you know, to pick up on your thing, sure. rather than being sort of angry about all of that, yeah, yeah. The, the skillful politician tries to yeah. thread a weave through it and, you know, get done what they want to get done using these forces or bypassing mm. them where they can. No, I'm sure that's true. <laughs> One of the many things I failed in doing, I think. Um, George, on the final bit of our, our conversation, just in terms of what next, what we can do about all this. You mentioned Macron earlier. One of the things I'm very struck by Macron is that he was unashamedly about the future. Everything he talks about is reinvention, reform, turning of the new page. It seems to me, I assume you might agree with me, that oddly enough, the two largest parties in the United Kingdom at the moment are now basically fighting about rival depictions of the past, a sort of hankering to a kind of past sort of 19th century gunboat diplomacy past um, on the right, uh, and, a, and a very nostalgic 1970s socialism in one country past in Labour. So there's a massive, it seems to me, flamingly obvious thing to say, appetite for folk to kind of talk with greater hope and optimism about the future. Can that come from within those two larger parties? Or do we need to wait for our own Macron or another party or a realignment? What do you think is more likely? Because politics abhors a vacuum. At some point, the country will want to turn to the future again and not these sort of desiccated kind of rival versions of the past. Where is that going to come from? Uh, I, I agree with you that... Um there's a big gap in the market, which is what you're saying. Um, uh, and in a media sense, I'm trying to put the evening standard there. Uh, the the country, I don't think, wants a choice between Jeremy Corbyn and Jacob Rees-Mogg. Uh, I don't believe that the things that we fought over, the sort of centrist, central ground of British politics, the sort of sensible, rational people who you know, want businesses to do well but want their public services to be funded, and I don't think that's disappeared. Uh, and... How the gap is filled remains to be seen. I think I would draw a distinction between the two main parties, and I will leave this as a question of why the Liberal Democrats aren't able to do it at the moment, which you know, I would leave with you. But the, the two kind of major parties, I think in the Conservative Party, it's entirely possible that it can come from within. You remember something like 18 of the 24 members of the Cabinet voted Remain. Uh, and more, a majority of Conservative MPs voted Remain. And I'm not here really talking about Brexit, but I'm talking about the kind of moderate, you know, centrist wing of the Tory party is still there and in government. And yes, you know, you've got a difficult block in the Conservative party you've got to deal with, but uh, that's always been the case. And you can see regeneration from within the Conservative movement. The Labour Party it seems to me, is in a very, very difficult state, uh, uh, which I take no pleasure from because I think actually it's bad for the country, genuinely. And that is, you know, the hard left have taken the citadel. You know, they they control the machinery of the Labour Party, the candidate selection, the discipline. They've got the leadership of the party. They never had any of those things in the 1980s with militant and the like. So this is a different, and it's very difficult to see how moderate social Democrats in the Labour Party get anywhere. And 
and the project of trying to retake the citadel will take you know possibly decades if it's at all achievable and so i think labor mps face in a way a more difficult unfortunately decision than conservative mps which is do they break away mm-hmm. and of course the whole history of the labor movement is that that's a bad thing to do and you you know the kind of memories of the SDP memories of the SDP. so I think that's where it will crack. And, and the reason why you won't get a new party is because, or I think it's unlikely, is because uh, for the, our electoral system, which, to be fair to you, we try vanity to change, yep. has a very high barrier to entry, even with the new mm. technology and the like. You know, you, in, in, you know, in a constituency like Kensington, which is, would be the kind of seat that would be, you would think, ripe for a centrist party, new party, uh, you know, you've still got to get... 50% of the vote yeah, or thereabouts yeah. to get in. But and Macron Ol- only had to get, you know, I say only, it was still an amazing yeah. achievement, but he had to get like 20, 21% yeah. to yeah. get into the contest. George, just on the bit about the Conservative Party, re, re, sort of green shoots of your kind of conservatism, if I can put it like that. Is it possible for liberal conservatives to flourish um, with, 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 with Brexit like a ball and chain around the country? Or is part of the reinvention and reform and renewal of this country is 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 seeking to kind of slip the noose of Brexit, end break, find an exit from Brexit. Is it is it a necessary, if not sufficient, condition for the rediscovery of the politics of reason and reform and progress? Well, I think we're going to be living with Brexit, overshadowing our politics for many many years to come. You know, there's a I think a somewhat naive view in some parts of the Conservative Party that. We you just have to tick the box and then go. We on. just got to, yeah. you, know, you know, you often hear it said amongst my former colleagues, you know, who I'm friends with. Let's just get Brexit yes. done, out of the way, and then we can talk about housing or yeah. social mobility or whatever it is they want to talk about. The that is not the case, right? This is a massive shock to the British political system, and is going to be overshadowing our politics for many, many years to come. We're still talking about the Iraq War, right, which happened, whatever it was, 15 years mm. ago, mm. and. We're going to be talking about Brexit in 15 years' time, and it's going to be shaping our decisions. And of course, the idea that this is a once in a you know only decision about our relationship with Europe is mm. itself nonsense, because British history has been always shaped about the relationship with Europe. So the idea that that's settled and isn't never coming back, I don't mind that mean necessarily that we'd rejoin the EU, but the idea that we you know that this settlement is final and can never be revisited is nonsense. So I think we're going to, you know, the Conservative Party needs to find a way to, to, you know, use Brexit and try and pursue a form of Brexit that is acceptable, at least, to the 16 million people. We hear a lot about the 17 million, but the 16 million people who voted no. And they, sorry, voted to remain in the EU uh, and voted no to Brexit. The, you know, that's the key. Um, and at the moment, they're not really making much of an effort to do so. And as a result, you know, by running against Metropolitan Britain, Metropolitan Britain is basically running against them, as I suppose. But hasn't the die been cast on that? I mean, this is not about Brexit, but just very quickly, Max, it's tremendously important what you say. Uh, if there was any remote prospect of a Conservative government leading this country towards a compromise, trying to bring the two sides together... A, let's say a sort of Norwegian version of Brexit. I, I can see what you're driving at, but if the decisions have already been well, made, not to be the customs union single market, well, well, da, 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 I mean, in a sense, you know, the die is cast. Isn't I think it? you know what, in my view, the Conservative Party should have done is say, you know, we ourselves were divided on this result. Mm. We accept that the result leads to Britain leaving the EU, but the country was split forty-eight fifty-two, 
And there are forms of membership of European arrangements like the customs union, which would be more consistent with that result than leaving everything. Mm, I agree with that. Uh, and they're beginning to find to their cost, you know, the enormous electoral price they're paying mm. for that. Um, but my and, question is, aren't they well, too far gone? No, well, I think for two reasons. One is these decisions are not all settled. There's going to be a key vote on mm. the customs union coming up later this year, which at the moment, my, by my count, the Tory party does not, the Tory government does not have a majority to do, which is why the vote keeps being pushed back. Uh, and I, I personally think once you're into this transition, I mean, what is this transition? This transition is membership of the EU. Except, yeah, but you're legally out. Well, well, no, hold on. You're legally out and you, um, you're legally out and you are not in the room where decisions are made, but you're literally abiding by all the things on fishing and product mm. regulation and paying money into the budget and accepting free movement of people and all of that. So you're sort of, you know, in your sort of shadow membership of the EU without actually having any say of thing, which... You're de facto in, but not de jure. It's a crazy approach in yeah. that sense. But it is the best approach they've got at the moment, which is avoid the cliff edge in, in um, 2019. But I think you've now got a new cliff edge in 2021, and that will be pushed back. You know, there will not be... But you push back, but you're... And I've heard that, this argument before. I mean, well, for what it's worth, I think, that under, I think you underestimate... What happens once you're legally out? I think it, that, yeah, that yeah. is the momentum of its own. I think you then pass through a door, which is why... Oh, I, agree. No, I certainly agree you've passed through a one-way door. But in the discussion about the free trade agreement, mm. you, you know, the debate can shift about the kind of relationships we want and the kind of compromises we're prepared to make and things like membership of... The, um, but can you see the Conservative Party ever well, I think it, adopt a well, I think position which would say can, we stay within the single market and the customs union? I think, yeah, of course you can. Yeah. Not least because it was the Conservative Party that created the single market. Indeed. And, and <laughs> you know, so, and and I also think you can take a different. If you like, mm. it feels like just about rhetoric, but it's more important than that. You can say instead of Brexit means Brexit, you can say our job is to heal the nation, yeah. and you don't heal the nation by saying. We hear you, but we're not going to pay any attention yeah, to you, yeah. which is the kind of current. You know, you've got to you've got to say, I properly understand this nation was divided. It's not getting any less divided yeah. as the passage of time. And you know, we as the party of government seeking re-election has are going to accommodate and understand that because if the Conservative Party cannot get back into Reading and Oxford oh. and Brighton and Bristol. Then they're no, very, very. I agree with you. Now that's just you know I'm a conservative <clears throat> and I'm more interested in that. I think in the Labour Party there's a, which is why I draw a distinction. There's this really difficult decision, which is do I leave the party I love because I've lost it and can't get it back? And what do you think they'll do? The sort of the, the, what I I'd call the, the, the centrist in the Labour Party. I think party. they probably will quit. Now I don't know whether they'll do it before the next general election or after, but I think is the kind of dawning realization that. Labour but if you're party, a moderate, if you're a moderate young. Small L liberal conservative, right? And you're you're in a party with the Liam Foxes and Jacob Rees Moggs and Bill Cashers of this world, and you look across the aisle and you see, I don't know, for the sake of argument, I'm not conferring any sort of motives on them, but I know the Chris Leslies and Chukra Munas of this world sort of breaking for new ground. Surely you'd be very, very tempted to join forces well, with them. I think it's easier. I think the easier path for you at the moment, at least, is to try and win the argument inside the Conservative Party rather than go and form a new party. And, and, and George, just let's say you were still in, in the House of Commons, you were still <clears throat> MP for Tatton, and let's say by the time that the House of Commons votes on the, the deal that you know, David Davis has to bring to um, the House of Commons for a so-called meaningful vote, 
And, and, and by that stage, it's clear that the government's not conceding on customs union and single market. In other words, it is the uncompromising, slightly sort of one-eyed view of Brexit that you've quite rightly criticised. What would you do? How well, would you I, I think when we were politicians, we said we didn't answer. <laughs> You're still not going to. <laughs> well, I would be, look, put it this way, I don't, I don't know about the, the final, but I, you know, I would be very, very tempted to vote to stay in the customs union. Because I think, although it doesn't solve all the problems at all, and... There no, are. that wasn't the question. No, but what, no, no, what would you no, do no. with a yay or nay on the, on the deal? Well, I don't think you can stop Brexit, and I don't think you can have a second referendum, but I would have a Brexit. So all of it, and I, much as I regret all that, um, uh, the country made a decision, but I think you could create a much better outcome yeah. that is much closer to the reality yeah. of that vote. A couple so your approach, which is, I don't agree with it, because I, just, I don't think it will work out like that, because I think facts on the ground will make it ever more difficult, political and economic. But you're looking kind of for... For long grass and well, fudge. I'm, uh, and every non-European, every non-EU European country yeah. has found a form of relationship with Accommodation. the EU, like Switzerland, Turkey, you know, half European country, uh, Norway. They've all found ways and created structures oh. for essentially being in some sort of associate relationship with the EU. And I suspect Britain will be there as well. George, thank you very, very much. Good luck with your podcast. Thank you. So thank you for listening. The next show is on in two weeks' time. If you enjoyed the show, then do please subscribe via Apple Podcasts. Just search for Anger Management with Nick Clegg. And if you'd like to give uh, the show a star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, that would obviously be very welcome. We're also on Spotify, Acast, Stitcher and all the major podcast providers. If you're an Apple denier and you're worried about what's going to happen or not going to happen to your data, you can download it at audioboom.com slash channel slash Nick Clegg. And please do follow me on Twitter at Nick underscore Clegg and let us know what you thought of this episode and anyone indeed who you think we should have on the show in the future. Though I have to say there's one person I really would like to get on the show who is the great uh, sort of archdeacon of anger, uh, the editor of the Daily Mail, uh, Paul Dacre. And no man specialises in anger better than he does. It'd be great to get him to speak about anger. He can relax, have a cup of tea, you know, a biscuit. Please, Mr Dacre, come and talk. Let, let all your anger come out and come on this show. Anger Management with Nick Clegg is a Podmasters production. Audio production is by Sophie Black and the producer is Andrew Harrison. Special thanks to Sam McCrory.